At the Commonwealth Policy Foundation, we try to approach the issues of life, marriage, religious liberty, and fiscal integrity from a biblical perspective that promotes thoughtfulness and kindness. We work with political leaders and concerned citizens from all across the state. To stay informed, visit CommonwealthMatters.org and sign up for our e-newsletter. The Commonwealth Policy Foundation is a nonprofit organization that only exists because of friends like you. Thanks for tuning in to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson, the Executive Director of the Commonwealth Policy Center, and we welcome you to this conversation on the church and politics. Uh, Joining us is Dr. Albert Moeller, President of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Moeller, welcome to the program. Richard, it's good to be with you. Uh, Important things to talk about. We, we do, and it's so good to have you uh, in this very timely conversation about the church and politics, and especially as we move closer to another election season. Uh, and in particular, my concern is my organization works closely with churches across Kentucky. I've got a lot of pastor friends uh, who are biblically grounded, and yet there is fear in the conservative evangelical church to speak to politics, uh, anything that might smack of endorsing a political party or a candidate, even the most conservative pastors tend to avoid uh, that conversation. Um, You just wrote a a, a book recently called The Gathering Storm, Secularism, Culture, and the Church. And so timely that you uh, are coming out with this book uh, you have been an observer of culture for several decades. You have been uh, uh, engaged in the public arena when it comes to um, parsing out, explaining what's happening from a biblical worldview. But I want to go back to the church right now. Is that observation I just shared with the fear that pastors have in our conservative churches, are you seeing that as well? This has been a long-term issue among uh, evangelical Christians, the fear of uh, addressing many issues because They may be considered political or divisive uh, or uh, controversial, but times run out. Uh, We're now looking at massive changes in our society that, if unchecked, are are actually going to even reduce and uh, threaten the uh, religious liberty by which the church speaks to uh, every issue, including the issues of the gospel and, and the preaching of scripture. So we're looking at, uh, at, at a landscape that I think has, uh, has escaped the notice of far too many Christians who just don't understand how the basic fundamental uh, landscape around us has changed. And uh, we bear some responsibility for this, failing to preach to issues, speak to issues, uh, make certain that our people are aware of issues, and they know how to translate Christian convictions into the public square. That, that missing translation is a missing faithfulness. Dr. Moeller, you say in your book, and I want to read one of the paragraphs, uh, a storm is coming, Western civilization and the Christian church stand at a moment of great danger. The storm is a battle of ideas that will determine the future of Western civilization and the soul of the Christian church. The forces we must fight are ideologies, policies, and worldviews that are deeply established among intellectual elites, the political class, and our schools— more menacingly, these ideas have also invaded the Christian church. Now, that these ideas have invaded the Christian church, that's not necessarily new because we saw this happen when liberalism crept into the church in the early 1900s, late 1800s, and the, most of the mainline churches have gone to the, the, the path of rejecting uh, Scripture, the authority of Scripture in Orthodox Christianity. 
But are you referring more specifically to the evangelical church when you say this? Well, in this sense, yes. I mean, the uh, the mainline Protestant church barely exists. It's been evacuated. Uh, they've got buildings, but no people. Uh, when it comes to uh, evangelical Christians, we've got people. But uh, I think many pastors are uh, at least a little bit aware of the fact that many of their people are thinking differently than even what the church teaches on many issues. You know, um, I teach uh, systematic and historical theology, and uh, the, the very heart of liberal theology was a substitution of feeling for biblical truth. Uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, who was the, uh, the, the theological, you know, forefather of theological liberalism in Germany, he actually said that uh, Christianity should be expressed best as a certain kind of feeling. Well, the problem is our feelings are fundamentally untrustworthy. Uh, and uh, But we're living in a time right now where I would say, just change the word feeling for sensitivity, and you can see where a lot of people are. They just say, well, that's an issue of a, a lot of sensitivity. Uh, so you look at the LGBTQ revolution, you ask, how could that have happened? And, uh, and you realize how much of it was simply driven by feeling. Americans began to feel that uh, this was the right sensitive thing to do or to allow and to allow to be normalized. Well, how many of the people in our churches would actually take any kind of clear stand on that issue, even though it is one of the clearest issues of biblical truth? And you add to that the transgender revolution. Uh, and then uh, kind of the, the, the whole agenda now that goes by the, uh, the language of woke. Uh, and uh, you realize there are there legitimate concerns behind much of that? Yes, but there's a worldview behind all of that that is, uh, is not compatible with biblical Christianity. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of pastors kind of sense that, but they're not addressing it. There are a lot of churches that aren't, aren't particularly clear on these issues. And, you know, Richard, here's one of the things that worries me. Um, I've been at this a very long time, and uh, I was a part of the Reagan revolution. I, I worked for uh, Governor Reagan, as he was then in 1976 in the campaign. Mm -hmm. We could count on a lot of churches then that I'm not sure we can count on now. And I know that, that that's shocking for my own ears to hear me say, but there are some churches now I just wouldn't count on, certainly in taking a public stand, that I would have 15 or 16 years ago. Yeah. It's about 50 years ago that Francis Schaeffer wrote the Christian Manifesto, and he said that the evangelical church was seeing society and government in bits and pieces instead of totals. It seems like we're in the same place. Perhaps we didn't heed his warning back then, but where do we begin to get a better understanding of the totals uh, and what's happening? Well, that's where as a minister and, and theologian, I have to come back to the fact that it has to start with the comprehensive teaching and preaching of the Word of God. There's no other place to go. That, 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 that's why Paul said to Timothy, preach the Word in season and out of season. But that kind of relentless biblical exposition requires connecting the dots. So this means, by the way, if in Genesis 1, we read that uh, God created us in His image, male and female created He them, and this is a, a truth that continues throughout the entirety of the Bible. It's reinforced with biblical law. It becomes the very substance of the biblical worldview. It's reinforced even by uh, the teachings of, uh, say, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. It's made clear uh, the reference to Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. You come to understand that the transgender revolution is something that has to be connected with the, with the dot. So that, that's to say that if we accept the logic of the transgender revolution, 
we don't have to undo, let's just say, doctrine A or B or modify biblical truth C or D. We've got to go back to Genesis 1 and say, we really don't believe that. And, um, and that, that just underlines the, the challenge that we now face. We, we've got to present Christians with biblical truth. Francis Schaeffer was absolutely crucial. I'm so glad you cited him uh, to my um, theological development and my, my, my understanding of what it meant to be a Christian apologist. And it was from Schaeffer I first learned the idea of a Christian worldview, the fact that Christianity is not just a basket of truths. It's a comprehensive fabric of interwoven threads. And uh, you've got to understand how all these truths cohere, how they, they hold together, and then applied to everyday life. And uh, what Schaefer was concerned about in the, the 1970s and 80s is what's happened now. Uh, you know, another thing that Schaefer said, since we're talking about him, uh, just came across another quote relevant that he said that the primary part of the gospel doesn't begin with salvation, it begins with Genesis 1. Now, he does not dismiss salvation. He says that's important. But I think this ties into what we're talking about today, because if you begin with salvation and the need for a Savior without talking about the fundamental reality of God and the Creator who makes us in His image, you've lost a lot of ground right there. And Would you say that's maybe where we are? We have lost in sharing the gospel starting at the wrong starting point. Yeah, let me uh, let me uh, take off from your question and say uh, I had the honor of knowing uh, Francis Schaeffer, and I I I know what he meant there, yeah. and uh, he didn't mean that when you sit next to someone on an airplane, uh, you start with biblical theology rather than talking to them about Jesus. That's not what he meant. Yeah. You know, when you're talking to a lost person, you share the gospel with them. That's uh that that's that's the right thing to do. But when you are then faced with a Christian, a believer. You've got to ground that Christian in the, the, the entirety of, of God's truth. And, and what he did mean as an indictment there is that churches that only preach salvation actually lose the church because Christians have no idea how to be Christians. If all you're doing is telling people how to become a Christian, you never tell Christians how to grow in faithfulness, how to grow up as disciples. And remember, the Great Commission is not just going to all the world. It is uh, also teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And, uh, and that's why you even look at the Great Commission at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. It reminds us that the Great Commission is not just go make converts, it's go make disciples. And uh, I, I think Francis Schaeffer is exactly right about that. We have a lot of churches that uh, know how to preach the gospel, but they don't know how to teach Christians how to grow and mature in Christ. Yeah. That's part of my story. I grew up in a Bible-believing church, and yet I did not develop a biblical worldview until I went on to graduate school. I actually walked away from the faith for um, later high school years and early college years, and it wasn't until I had some godly men who mentored me in the faith in graduate school. Uh, Dr. Moeller, uh, you write in your book, uh, the secular age writes checks that it cannot cash. It claims to uphold human rights even as it undercuts any argument for human dignity and natural rights. It invents new rights like same-sex marriage at the expense of fundamental rights such as religious liberty. It claims a high view of human dignity but aborts millions of unborn human beings in the womb. The pattern goes on and on. Uh, pivoting off of that, what do you say to the pastor who says, and you may have already addressed this, but how do you respond to the pastor who says, I just focus on the gospel and we don't get involved with other issues? What would you say to that pastor? Gender issues, the marriage issue, 
How do you respond to that? We don't want to be controversial. We might be a seeker-sensitive church, and we don't want to offend people. How do you respond? Well, I just want to respond by saying you are dealing with those issues. You may be dealing with them ineptly or unfaithfully, but you are dealing with those issues. So let me just walk you through it. Let's say, uh, does your church marry people? Well, who do you marry? And that means who do you not marry? So guess what? You are actually dealing with this issue. The question is, do your people have any clue why you have the policies you have? Or are, are you kind of violating your convictions with the policies you allow? Uh, what do you think about what, what would you say to uh, someone who shows up as a same sex couple? What would you say? Uh, on what basis would you would you respond? Uh, and and it, it, this gets back to the, the, the pastoral quandary. You're actually making a statement. And you're taking a stand of sorts by either taking a stand or not taking a stand. If you just let the church go, well, that's also a decision for which the pastor is responsible. And I think it it will bear the judgment of God. So we are dealing with these issues. And furthermore, you know, I often hear some Christians and the older I get, the more I identify with older Christians. But I have some older Christians who say to me, well, I, I just don't have to deal with this. Well, guess what? Your grandchildren do. Uh, every single day they have to deal with it in school they're being taught they're being taught something that is contrary to scripture you're either going to correct that or you're going to end up with pagans in your own house you know i I keep reminding people and this is uh this is the subject of one of my earlier books one of the main issues for israel in going into the land of canaan was raising their children in a pagan place without their children becoming pagans and uh, that that's something I mean, if, if if Christian parents and Christian church leaders don't understand that that's where we live, we're living in Canaan. It's going to take extraordinary energy. Uh, this is a passage like Deuteronomy six, uh, where uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, you know, through Moses, God tells his people, you know, you, you have to teach your children the law. You have to teach them and you're going out and then you're coming in and you're standing up and then you're sitting down. You have to comprehensively teach God's truth to your children or they're going to end up being pagans. Yeah, yeah, that's a good word. We are seeing the marginalization of Christians and Christian belief in the public arena and with uh, political candidates as well. I think the best example is with Amy Coney Barrett, who was the uh, recent nominee to the Supreme Court of the United States by President Trump. Uh, of course, Barrett is a devout Catholic. Um, her faith does influence who she is uh, and her reasoning. But her faith is now under the microscope. And you could go back to 2017 when Senator Dianne Feinstein really put her through the ringer and quipped, when you read your speeches, she's referring to Amy Coney Barrett, when you read your speeches, the conclusion is that the dogma lives loudly within you, and that's of concern. What does this mean, Dr. Moeller, when high-level governmental officials question a judge's religious convictions like Senator Feinstein did? Well, you know, you could respond on the first hand by saying it's unconstitutional. Article 6 of the United States Constitution says there may be no religious test for public office, and that certainly means that it's illegitimate for a member of the United States Senate to grill a federal appointee about his or her religious faith. you know, you would think at least that United States senators would honor the United States Constitution upon which they have sworn an oath. But that's just the first level. The second level is uh, that just shows you how secularization works to where you end up with. In the case of uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, someone that uh, I have been following closely for well over a decade and who's a game changer on the Supreme Court, for whom I'm just incredibly thankful. When you look at an Amy Coney Barrett, and you look at her confirmation hearings in 2017, you realize that you have members of the United States Senate who say that 
Here you have a candidate who's identified as a Catholic. Well, you know, that's the largest single denominational identification or, or religious identification of, uh, of uh, Americans and uh, disproportionately found on the Supreme Court and on the United States Senate in that sense. And, and what, what was she found guilty of? Believing what the Catholic Church officially teaches. And, and so in this secularized age, you have these pseudo-Catholics, and yes, I will say that, who are now standing in judgment of a real Catholic for holding to the actual teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. And, uh, and that, that's where we are. So, and that language that Senator Feinstein, who's not Catholic, but nonetheless, uh, when she was uh, asking that question, it was an Article 6 violation of the Constitution, yes. But it was an illuminating moment uh, in that sense. Thankful it happened. And I just want to look at Senator Feinstein and say, hey, when you look at me, you're looking at an evangelical in whom the dogma lives loudly. It's a strange expression, but I'll just go with it, Senator Feinstein. The dogma lives loudly within me. I am a believing Christian. I believe that every single word of the Bible is true and every word of the Bible is fully true. And yes, the dogma lives loudly within me. And you know what? Uh, I know why I believe in human dignity and human rights. It's because God made us in his image. And I'll contend for that from the moment of conception until natural death. I know why I believe in human dignity. Why do you believe in human dignity? On what basis do you believe in human dignity? I'm glad you do, but no one's going to hold it for long just believing that Diane Feinstein holds to it. You, if you deny the creator God of the universe, having made us in his image, then any government is either going to respect or disrespect human rights, depending upon whether it wants to or not. That's not good enough, not even for the United States. There, our constitutional liberties are worth nothing if people don't believe that every single human being is made in God's image and thus possesses dignity. That's inherent in the Declaration of Independence, let's remind ourselves. Yeah, that's very good. Uh, what I was hearing in your response, if Senator Feinstein put you on the hot seat, was an opportunity for apologetics, for you to explain your deep Christian convictions and why you believe the way you believe. Uh, so I'm seeing this for other Christian candidates who are maybe marginalized or their faith is put under a microscope. They have opportunities as well, and it probably comes down to how well-grounded they are in the faith and if they're prepared to uh, to meet that challenge. You know, Richard, one other thing we have to watch here is that uh, it's becoming impossible now to uh, run under the radar. And uh, that's something to watch. So with Senator, with, uh, Senator Feinstein and Amy Coney Barrett, uh, Judge Barrett was not able to, not that she was trying, that's my point, but she didn't run under the radar. Uh, somebody's going to find her out. Someone had to give Diane Feinstein the information to ask that question. And that's the way it's going to be. None of us is going to be able to run under the radar. So you know what? Let's let the dogma live loudly within us. Let's give, be always ready for an answer for the hope that is in us. Let's, uh, let's have no more of this trying to run under the radar. Let's just look into the television camera and say, here's what I believe. I believe that every single life is sacred, and that means life in the womb. And I'm going to say that whether I sit on the United States Supreme Court or whether I'm pastoring a church or whether I'm talking to my neighbor. Um, going under the radar was a bad strategy. It didn't work. It didn't last. And it's long gone. It's long gone, and it's become a liability for those Christian political candidates who it's found out that they are uh, Christians and they have deep convictions. Um, Dr. Moeller, we've come a long way. We're, we're both in Kentucky. You're in Louisville. I'm in far west Kentucky at the moment. But we live in a state where it's acknowledged in the preamble of our Constitution. It says, where God is acknowledged, it says, We, the people of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, grateful to Almighty God for the 
civil, political, and religious liberties we enjoy, and invoking the continuance of these blessings. We've come a long way from that, acknowledging God as the giver of our rights, right here in our state constitution, to now it being a liability to even acknowledge there's a God or that that God influences who you are or your political rationale. How do we come out of this? We're in a dark period uh, where it's now a liability to be a Christian political candidate. How do we emerge from this? What What is that next step? How, what, what do you see necessary for, let's just focus on Christian politicians. What What do we need to see in the Christian political class? And there are many here in Kentucky. I know many state house and state Senate candidates, but what do we need to see from them? We need to see a backbone. Uh, we need to see convictions that are translated into absolute commitments in legislation and in policy. Look, here's what we're facing. I'm talking to you, as you said, from the city of Louisville, where our uh, our local government just made illegal so-called conversion therapy. Now, there's some forms of conversion therapy I don't think any Christian uh, ministry would use, but this means that given this vote uh, by the Louisville Jefferson County government, a, a Christian counselor, psychiatrist, let's just say, who has Christian parents bringing a Christian teenager to him, and the Christian teenager says, I'm struggling with gay impulses, but I don't want to be gay. Now, and uh, it's illegal. Uh, it breaks the law of Jefferson County and of Louisville for that Christian psychiatrist to say, well, let me help you with that on biblical terms. Now, that doesn't at this point constrict the pulpit, but it tells you they will find a way to do that as soon as they can. And uh, so, I mean, here we are. Kentucky is not an oasis in the middle of, uh, uh, of a storm. Uh, we, we are right in the middle of the storm. And uh, it, it's right here. And, and there are people in Kentucky who say, well, that'll stay in Louisville. Oh, uh, no, it won't. That's right. So we have seen in Louisville, and you're referring to the Metro Council's passage of the uh, ban on what they call conversion therapy. We see that as an infringement on religious freedom rights of pastoral, of, of counselors and therapists who want to counsel a young person to leave. And if, of course, if that young person agrees to it, if they want to leave the LGBT uh, identity, uh, that's no longer allowed in Louisville. Right. And, and it's, it's specific that metro government legislation is for licensed counselors. And so it doesn't have anything to do right now with a pastor standing up in the pulpit. And so that pastor may say, well, hey, I'm safe. No, you're not. Uh, you're 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 just one legislative step away or uh, one policy step away. But furthermore, if you really believe in religious liberty, you believe in religious liberty for the member of your church who's a psychiatrist. And if you don't believe in religious liberty for that Christian psychiatrist, then you're basically tying the noose that will hang you and your church. And uh, and that's where we are. And, that, and that's just in the last several days right here in Louisville, Kentucky. So what should the response of churches in Louisville, hundreds and hundreds of churches across the city of Louisville, what would be the appropriate responses for church in light of this recent legislation there? Well, I'm embarrassed to ask the question, how many churches in Louisville have ever preached a sermon on this issue? I don't mean a sermon on the metro legislation. I mean a sermon on how does a Christian struggle with this and and on biblical terms find obedience to God? How does the church maintain a ministry? And how would a member of our church who's a Christian psychiatrist be faithful in the midst of this? You know, we can hardly be surprised if, if the average Christian in, in Louisville goes, well, what's conversion therapy? Why should I be concerned about it? It's already gone. The horse is already out of the gate. Uh, we, 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 we're going to bear judgment for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I wish I had a, a better answer. I wish I had a, a response for the church, but uh, perhaps it's going to take some more pain before the church wakes up and realizes that they have no choice but to respond. Maybe they'll have to see that threat of uh, messages from the pulpit come from a local body, and that's where it's going. Let's uh, have no illusion here, but that is where the LGBT community would like to take it. Uh, they see the church as a threat to their dignity as they define it, and uh, the only real uh, institution in society saying that LGBT identities unrepented of our sin. The only place that this is coming from is the church. That's right. And we need to remind pastors and Christians, Christian churches, that if you claim religious liberty only for yourself as an institution and for your pulpit, but not for your church members, then you really don't believe in religious liberty and you really don't believe in Christianity applied in the everyday world. And uh, I'm hearing some of that from pastors and churches, and it's a, it's a lethal uh, perspective. Dr. Moeller, I'd like to pivot to the presidential race. We uh, just saw a very messy, maybe ugly debate last week. Uh, many Christians are uh, trying to figure out who to vote for. I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you to endorse anybody or who you're even voting for. But how do we process this presidential race where we have two very imperfect candidates, very flawed candidates, uh, that might be understating it, um, but there are some in the Christian community saying, look, I need to vote for this political party and the values and, the, and its platform, whereas this other political party just is totally antithetical to uh, basic Christian beliefs and, and some of the founding ideals of this country. How should we be thinking through this, uh, through this presidential race and who to vote for? Well, in the American political system, by the time you get to a presidential election, you really are looking at a binary choice. You're looking at a Republican candidate and a Democratic candidate. And even though they're independents on the ballot, the way the Electoral College works, and by the way, I'm extremely thankful for the Electoral College. Constitutional conservatives need to defend the Electoral College. Otherwise, states like Kentucky just won't matter in a presidential election. But given the realities of Electoral College, it's going to be a binary choice because the only way to win is to get to 270 votes. And that's going to be either R or D. It's going to be either Republican or Democrat. And over the course of the last several decades, those two parties have moved into far different polarized positions. The, the, the parties were I, I can remember a time I often quote, you know, remember George Wallace when he was running uh, uh, for president. Uh, he used to say there's not a dime's worth of difference between the Republicans and the Democrats. And that was during the 1960s, early 70s. And there was truth in that, by the way, at the time. There wasn't a dime's worth of difference. Well, there's a there's a million dollars worth of difference between the two parties. Now they hold two very different perspectives. And and they, they make this manifest in their platforms and in their policies. So right now, the Democratic Party is so pro-abortion that it's going to defend abortion all the way up until the very moment of birth. Just look at what happened in legislation in states like New York and Illinois and Rhode Island, and it's going to deny any restrictions on abortion whatsoever. And it's now with uh, even uh, Joe Biden, who defended the Hyde Amendment for decades in the Senate, under the political pressure to get his party's nomination, he's now calling for the end of the Hyde Amendment. And that's a part of the Democratic Party platform. And uh, that means the American taxpayer would be coerced into paying for abortion. And it, it's one of the most radical ideas imaginable. And uh, so it's, it's never just health care and defense policy and the budget. Those are important issues. But when it comes to something as fundamental as the sanctity of human life, you've got one party that says we're so pro-abortion, we're against any restriction, any restriction, even one, even partial birth abortion. And we're going to demand federal funding for abortion. And you have another party that is uh, 
Well, is it has a president who's nominated an Amy Coney Barrett to the United States Supreme Court. You're looking at two polar opposites. And so for me, it's a very easy decision. Yeah, very good. We, we need to wind this up. We, I wish we could continue on, but we've got about another minute here. Uh, if you imagine you're speaking to pastors right now about the election, what would you encourage them to speak of? And actually what you just said was, was great, but uh, what would you tell pastors across the country regarding Christians engaging this election and in uh, processing biblically how they should how, how they should vote? Well, let's just say what, what could be more timely than reminding the church of why we believe in the sanctity of human life, why we root human dignity? Uh, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, being made in God's image. Why we believe about gender and sexuality, what we do. How the Christian truth is to be translated into the public square. Uh, these are things that ought to be preached, you know, all the time in, in, in our churches, but especially as Christians are thinking about how to fulfill faithfulness and an issue as responsible as a presidential election in the United States. Uh, I don't believe that preachers should get up and say a candidate's name, and I endorse that candidate, as a matter of biblical conviction. But I think the pastor ought to get up and say, we as Christians contend for the sanctity and dignity of every single human life out of biblical conviction. We can't be faithful to scripture and undermine human dignity and the sanctity of human life. And, uh, and furthermore, the, the freedom to preach the gospel. Remember, religious liberty is not an abstract concept. It's whether or not we have liberty to preach the gospel. And uh, constrictions on religious liberty mean a constriction on our ability to preach the word of God and to tell people about Jesus. This is not hypothetical. So I would say to a preacher, understand again, there's no way to run under the radar. There's no place to hide. Uh, don't turn your, your uh, pulpit into, uh, you know, don't, don't put a sign on the front of your pulpit. Don't put a bumper sticker on your pulpit. But abortion's not a bumper sticker issue. The sanctity of human life, human dignity. Um, marriage, sexuality, gender, uh, religious liberty. These are not bumper sticker issues. These are biblical truth issues. Preach them. That's very good. And Dr. Moeller, we will end on that note. We thank you so much for your time and for joining us. God bless you and keep up the good work at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Thank you, Richard. It's been great to be with you. God bless you all.